0: Due to the discussion of violence, sexual assault, and details of autopsy, listener discretion is advised. There are some media quotes which misgender trans and trans-adjacent victims. This is The Fall Line.
1: very hard to get out of the checkbox mind frame of you know the old the old police work with the forms you've got one or the other check one and that's the way all forms are in, in any kind of matching system and it's all computerized now so it should be easy to check across both categories or all categories and the fact that that isn't done is going to make these people who fall into these shades of gray be overlooked. They're going to fall through the cracks.
0: She was found off Green Swamp Road, just a few miles east of Highway 33. The swamp stretches over 110,000 acres in five counties. Its outskirts are fringed with scrub oak and wooded state roots. If you go far enough, you hit I-75. You can ride that all the way to Georgia. She might have been traveling the roads that September. It was 1988, and hitchhiking was more common. She might have traveled with a friend or a partner or someone she thought she could trust. She'd been in that scrub off Greenswamp Road for a long time, probably since winter. She lay face up in a ditch, obscured by overgrowth of waist-high weeds. And January and February had been mild, with highs in the 60s, but the heat set in by June and she lay undiscovered through the summer, exposed to the elements, the sun and rain, the animals. By the time she was finally found, authorities would have no obvious means by which to identify her. They searched, even with metal detectors, but nothing but her body remained. The closest home was a mile away, and the residents there knew nothing of her. She was a strawberry blonde with brown roots. On the day she died, she'd been wearing a greenish-blue tank top, a denim skirt, and pantyhose. Her body lay just north of the Polk County line, where she was found by a man who'd been looking for cypress lumber. And she was badly decomposed, mostly skeletonized. Her pantyhose were partially rolled down. And her skirt was pulled down, too. And, though the cause of her death was not apparent, it was evident that her body had been hidden. She was not the first or the last. In 1984, the body of a woman who has come to be known as Alatoona Jane Doe was discovered in the Ocala National Forest. She was small and maybe 20. She wore a baggy shirt printed with flowers and the words, Have you kissed your child tonight? Websites NamUs and The Doe Network both include the same crime scene photo, a single light brown shoe. Then came the woman we now know as Julie Doe, found in September of 1988. Over the next three years, more bodies were discovered in Lake County. One victim, Pamela Cole, was from New York. She was identified by police as a sex worker. She was 34 years old and found in a wooded area near Leeburg. She had been strangled. Her body was discovered by a 12-year-old girl. It was the girl's usual path home from the bus stop. That same year, 1991, another woman was found off 474, near where Julie Doe was discovered. She'd been tortured and posed. Law enforcement described the stage scene as indicative of a killer's signature, and they suspected that whoever he was, he'd killed before. Eventually, a man named Joseph Rowell was convicted of her rape but acquitted of her murder in one of the first trials in Florida to use DNA evidence. He was sentenced to life. Raul told authorities that he didn't know the victim's name. He'd picked her up with the promise of drugs. Just that she was a small woman with reddish-brown hair and hazel eyes. The coroner suspected she'd had at least one child. And she remains unidentified to this day. Authorities suspected that Raul had more victims. Perhaps even some of the other women who'd been dumped in the Lake County area. Rao was in the military when Julie Doe was killed and would have been stationed off the West Coast at that time. That doesn't necessarily preclude a trip home to Florida, but there's no proof he was in town when she died. The next case came in 1993, when a badly decomposed body was found by hog hunters. A vulture led them to a wooded crime scene, and the woman they found there was eventually identified as Claudia Rodin, a hosiery mill worker from Alabama who'd simply stopped reporting to work. As had her husband, employed at the same plant. He was implicated in her death. The Orlando Sentinel reported that the key to her identification was an ornate Guns N' Roses tattoo. She was 21 years old. One woman in 1984, another in 1988, two in 1991, and one in 1993. Two identified killers, two identified victims. No clear pattern to the timing, no apparent connection between the cases. All of the victims were white, and all were found in or near the woods. All were in the Lake County area. Police looked at possible connections to a series of strangulation deaths in Jacksonville, Florida. That's just a little northeast of Lake County. The attacks there were eventually attributed to a few different men, including a now-convicted serial killer named Patrick Allen Harold. He pled guilty to the murders of three women, all white sex workers, all dumped off Florida highways. Police tracked him down because he'd left a single bloody fingerprint on a victim's body. Harold was suspected of the death of at least one other woman, Sharon Sangster, but was not prosecuted for her murder. She's still listed in Florida as a cold case. Like Julie Doe, she was a dyed blonde. Like Julie Doe, she was killed in 1988. Was he considered in the other Lake City cases, Pamela Cole, Julie Doe? Authorities haven't said. In the same time frame, serial rapist and migrant farm worker James Alfred Holloway was suspected in another series of strangulation murders. Black women from all over the state of Florida, but especially around the Jacksonville area. The women, including an 80-year-old grandmother named Maggie Risby, had their bodies posed after death. Maggie had been a friend of Holloway's grandmother. He was arrested after he attacked a 22-year-old woman who was walking home from a birthday party. The Orlando Sentinel reported that she bit her assailant's fingertip off during the struggle, and when Holloway was found, he had a matching injury. Police say that he initially confessed to a series of unsolved cases, and they'd hoped to close a number of homicides, but he recanted and he was eventually sentenced for rape and attempted murder. The case of Maggie Risby remained cold until 2004. That's when Holloway discarded a toothpick that police were able to retrieve. According to the Tampa Bay Times, they ran his DNA against swabs taken from Maggie Risby's fingernails. And they got a hit. Holloway was charged with her murder. But as for the other women they'd suspected him of killing, the news trail is harder to follow and we don't know what happened. Many were sex workers. Some women's names appeared only once or twice in the papers, like Pamela Gambles, Laverne Mack, Nancy Jenkins. Pamela and Laverne are listed on the Columbia County Cold Case page, and Nancy isn't listed anywhere. Other serial killers operated in Florida in the late 80s and early 90s. Some sources estimate that number of active serial murderers in the state at more than a dozen. There was the Gainesville Ripper, Danny Rowling, who in 1990 killed five college students. From 1989 to 1990, Eileen Warnos murdered men all over the state. In 1986, truck driver Oscar Ray Bolin killed at least three women, and he'd go on to marry a member of his defense team on live TV. And those are just a few who've been identified. We used the Cold Case Project database to examine unsolved homicides of Florida women between 1986 and 1995. According to the results, there are 11 unsolved strangulations, 25 stabbings, 23 shot, 4 dead by blunt force trauma. Many of the strangulation cases are in the northeastern part of the state, in counties like Duval, Lake, Madison, and Polk. There wasn't much archival news available, but we were able to determine that many were dumped on or near highways. This doesn't tie Julie Doe and the other women to one killer, or even a handful of killers. But it can tell us quite a bit in regards to how bodies are disposed of and what role interstates and roadways play in that process. Ginger Strand's 2012 book, Killer on the Road, Violence in the American Interstate, explores how, since the 1950s, Interstate access has intersected with homicide. The ability to move more easily from one state to another makes criminals harder to track and victims more difficult to identify. This slow realization has led the FBI to develop the Highway Serial Killing Initiative. For those who aren't familiar, the FBI's history of the initiative explains that, in 2004, law enforcement in Texas and Oklahoma noticed a pattern more than 40 bodies dumped along the state's shared highways. Eventually, they began to identify a suspect pool, principally made up of long-haul truckers. According to the FBI's own 2017 podcast, the Highway Serial Killings Initiative has led to the identification of more than 400 suspects since it began more than a decade ago. More than 700 victims have been identified, with at least one in every state but Hawaii. They also explained that 10 suspects have been arrested as a result of the initiative, including two men responsible for at least some of those Oklahoma-Texas crimes. The victims of these crimes were and are mostly women. Many of them worked in the sex industry and especially in and around truck stops. Whether or not they are sex workers, they can be home insecure, dealing with the effects of poverty and addiction, and dependent on others for transportation. It's well known that predators will seek out victims who are less likely to get police or media attention. As Green River killer Gary Ridgway explained after his arrest, quote, I picked up prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. In 2018, sociologists Lee and Reed published a paper, Serial Killers and Their Easy Prey. In it, they looked at the intersection of sex work and safety. They reported that sex workers are, quote, 18 times more likely to be killed by a serial killer than someone who does not participate in sex work. And the authors cite numerous examples of sex workers either afraid to report violent assaults or ignored when they do. Even as in the case of a survivor of Canadian serial killer Robert Pickton when they arrive at the emergency room with stab wounds and a handcuff still around one wrist. Across the United States, local groups have tried to make sex work a little safer. Lee and Reed note the publication of bad guy client lists and the establishment of anonymous tip lines. The Global Network of Sex Work Projects offers a free PDF of information aimed at improving safety in working environments, too. But the illegality of sex work naturally limits that impact. It's easy to recognize one change that would come with decriminalization. Authorities would catch some of these killers much, much earlier. Perhaps there would not be another Gary Ridgway or Samuel Little killing scores of women across decades. Back to Florida. Of the Lake County and Jacksonville victims, roughly half were known sex workers. Of the known killers, three were serial murderers. And as for Julie Doe? Her precise cause of death, as we said, is not known. She was not identified as a known sex worker, and there wasn't much media on her case to analyze. In 1988, only a few articles appeared, mostly in the Orlando Sentinel. And that was a little surprising, because she had many features that we might associate with a victim who generate news. She was blonde, she was white, she was probably not more than 30, and she had been in good health. She had breast implants, which signaled that at some point, she'd had money to afford surgery. Her nails were manicured, and her hair was dyed. She'd had a nose job. And yet, she did not attract interest. The Altoona Jane Doe, who died two years later, is much easier to track down in the news archives. But then again, her cause of death was known. Her killer was caught. She had been tortured and posed. Perhaps that very fact attracted more attention. In general, Doe cases fade quickly. There's no family to quote or to push for coverage to continue. We can say one thing with certainty. Julie's case was investigated. Several searches were performed, including a sweep involving a marine detail. Detectives tracked a number of leads, most centered on a group of young people who were employed at the Lake Orange Country Club in the area. Their stories were confusing and very convoluted. Some claim that a man nicknamed Bubba said he'd been the one to find Julie's body and that when he found it, he thought she was his friend Cheryl. When they tracked Bubba down, he denied this and said that he'd simply heard that the woman who was found looked like Cheryl, and so he'd then called Cheryl to make sure she was okay. Then there were stories of a series of women who might have gone missing or had recently been seen with Bubba. Anyone who vaguely matched Julie's description was up for discussion. And no matter the story, Bubba seemed to float to the center of each conversation. There were rumors that Julie might have been a woman seen at a local gas station by an attendant, one who turned down the offer of beer from a male customer. That customer was eventually identified as Bubba. There were some discussions of a former girlfriend from out of town who'd, quote, let Bubba down hard, but she'd been at work the day after Julie's body was found. Ultimately. No ties were found to connect Julie to Bubba or any of his friends. The only lead outside of that friend circle was a tip that regarded a local sex worker who operated around the truck stops. Authorities were able to locate her, though, and ascertain her well-being within a few days. Our FOIA request returned hundreds of pages. Incident reports, autopsy results, pictures of the scene, of Julie Doe's skull and of her teeth. Lake County collected a wide array of evidence, including soil samples and video of the crime scene, and they've kept those items in good order for the past 30 years. Their coroner found a number of premortem injuries, including a broken rib, a broken toe, and other healed trauma. Most notably, there was a report proving that Dr. William Maples examined Julie's body. In 1988, it would have been hard to find a forensic anthropologist with a better reputation. As the Orlando Sentinel explained, he participated in the examinations of everyone from President Zachary Taylor to the remains of Joseph Merrick, also known as the Elephant Man. According to Smithsonian Magazine, he also worked to identify the Romanovs and was involved in the cold case of civil rights leader Medgar Evers. His team's work led to a conviction in Evers' case of a white supremacist who'd shot Evers down in his own driveway. There was not a more public facing forensic anthropologist at the time, especially one so respected in his own academic community. William Maples died in 1997, long before the 2015 DNA results that transformed the investigation of Julie Doe. That test showed that Julie had XY chromosomes and had undergone gender confirmation surgery in the years before her death. The woman whose family they tried so hard to find might not have known she was gone, or they might have been looking for her as someone assigned male at birth. Maybe it's hard to understand that Maples could have come to the conclusion that Julie was a cisgender female, and more so that she'd given birth to at least one child. There's certainly a lot of internet criticism on that topic, but it's important to consider that he based his conclusions on the best science available in 1988. When I spoke to Tamara Dale, the investigator currently assigned to Julie's case, she agreed. And she's been a tireless advocate for resolution. To explain how Maples concluded that Julie was cisgender, you need to know a bit about forensic anthropology and how it's continued to develop over the years. Maples was most active in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And in the mid to late 90s, the doctor was diagnosed with brain cancer. He passed away in 1997. Around the time Maples became ill, there was a shift in anthropological practice. His former mentee, Robert Warren, has stated such. When Maples was most active in his field, forensic texts describe skeletonized remains as commonly grouped into sex category by bone length, skull shape, and changes in the pelvic and hip regions. And many of those aspects are still considered today. Viewed in tandem, the picture can be fairly complete, but a single point of comparison may be less definitive. For instance, in isolation, a tall woman's femur and a short man's femur would not be precise predictors. That's why multiple comparisons are helpful. Before DNA testing is done, if it is done at all, there's commonly a study of the size of jaw, smoothness of skull, wideness of pelvis, width of the pelvis socket, and so on. According to an article by Molly Bierman on sapiens.org, pelvic bones may not always easily fall into the categories of male or female. Depending on a variety of factors, the bones may be graded on a scale of 1 to 5, with 3 being a pelvis of uncertain category. She uses this information to point out the lack of studies outside of sexual binaries, most especially among transgender and intersex individuals. So, not only may an individual be miscategorized, the categories themselves may not reflect human variants. Dr. Maples would have used a variety of markers in Julie's case, but not DNA. After all, it was 1988. Her initial autopsy was performed by Lake County examiner Dr. Schultz just a day after she was found. To explain what remains Dr. Schultz had left to examine and how we interpreted them, it's clearest if we directly reference the autopsy. The following notations, though not the whole of the report, are particularly related to age, sex, and race. He notes, The orbits are oval, and this is a marker of race. Suture lines in the skull, which determine age, are closed but not fused. The pelvis is noted of being a female type. The majority of tissue of the neck is absent. There is damage to the hyoid bone, the bone right above the Adam's apple, which he describes as congenital. The report goes on to mention a rupturing of her silicone implants. It's unknown whether they were ruptured before death or due to decomposition. The implants were likely inserted around 1983. And there's also a note that she had an average-sized nose, which is followed by a list of the clothing found on her body. Two of the points he mentions, the pelvis and the tissue of the neck, may be the most important. In 1988, gender confirmation surgery was poorly understood and much more rare than it is today. Couple that lack of knowledge with the following information. Few of her organs remain, which could easily account for the lack of a uterus or a hysterectomy would be an equally reasonable explanation for that. The report does not specify what classifies her pelvis as female, though we know the female pelvis is generally wider if smaller in size. The report ends by stating, quote, these were the remains of a fairly tall, strong white female, who died most likely in her mid to late 20s. He notes that she had probably given birth and showed no signs of premortem trauma or disease aside from healed and, quote, fairly significant facial injuries. Cause of death was unknown, but she had not died at the scene. Her body had been dragged and placed. A homicide, a hit and run, an accidental overdose, there were a variety of possibilities. But someone hit her, like so many women before and after her. Animal predation, weather, and decomposition can affect positioning. So, if Julie had been posed, That was not apparent when she was found. But she was left with her pantyhose rolled down, which makes it feel like a hit and run or an overdose was unlikely. After the initial autopsy, she was examined by Dr. Maples in his own Florida lab. Most of his findings aligned with the county coroner's. He agreed on time of death. He notes near the beginning of his report that, quote, these are clearly the remains of a white female. And he goes on to offer a precise review, detailing specific traits and how they fit into classification. For instance, Dr. Maples notes that Julie's very well-developed muscles are support for her having had at least one child. Various bone formations, fusions, and ossifications confirmed an age range of 24 to 32. The doctor actually disagrees regarding the fracture of the highway bone— the bone above the Adam's apple, but he agrees she had an extensive facial trauma concentrated around her nose. He doesn't specify nose job here, though that is noted in later internal reports. He does not comment on her pelvis either. Based on reports prepared after Julie's DNA was tested, a major component of the female pelvis designation would have been pitting. Before women give birth, Hormone secretion affects the pelvis via the release of what a 2015 lab report describes as, quote, hormones estrogen and recumbent relaxin, a peptide hormone that induces ripening of the cervix prior to childbirth. There's a specific groove, too, considered characteristic to the female pelvis, which a radiology study found in 32% of women and 0% of men. But estrogen pitting can create marks that look similar to this groove. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that anthropological papers began to note occasional pelvic pitting and grooving in male pelvises. This is thought to be caused by the prostate, which can also secrete relaxin. Hormonal therapy can introduce large doses of estrogen to the body, which can in turn cause pitting in everyone, no matter their chromosomes. Science might be called what we know, what we used to know, and what we will know and its application is by necessity shaped by the people employing the best techniques of the day. In the 1980s, few Americans could afford gender confirmation surgery, which in turn means that few doctors had experience with post-transition patients. Dr. Maple's mentee, Robert Warren, now heads up his old identification lab at the University of Florida. If you'll recall, he's the one who discovered that Julie had been through transition. According to the Sentinel, it began as part of an initiative to review cold cases with improved technology. When asked why his mentor had classified Julie as cisgender, he pointed to the changing view of bone pitting. But he also touched on a key point, quote, All the reports called the person a female. If you're getting all that information, it can influence you. Julie's remains were kept in the laboratory for 27 years, where they were stored after Dr. Maples issued his report. In the same Orlando Sentinel article, Warren describes pulling Julie's remains from storage. He remembers being startled to see several markers that indicated that she may have been born, quote, biologically male, including narrow aspects of the pelvis and the length of her leg bones. Those discrepancies pushed his team to extract and run DNA in 2015. That test revealed that Julie had X-Y chromosomes, and the scientists reclassified her as, quote, biologically male. And so, police had been chasing down leads and taking tips, without knowing that, at some point in Julie's history, she was likely known to family and friends and neighbors as male or male-presenting. <laughs> Stress sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine, and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us, is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps, so for her, the 50-minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. New Calm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over one million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The New Calm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucom.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, Ball, Julie was found without a purse or wallet or any form of identification. She may have been transient, but she was in general good health and was able to maintain a manicure, which is no easy feat on the road. Unlike many trans women of the 1980s, it seems Julie had regular access to hormone treatment. We spoke to Ivana Black, who was quoted in last week's episode about hormone availability in the 1990s. She estimated that only 10% of the people she knew were able to consistently access prescribed hormones and that it was even more difficult for those who moved between cities. At least one member of law enforcement theorizes that Julie could have been a sex worker. Location of the dump site and the high cost of surgery could support that theory, though she certainly could have funded her own confirmation procedures in a number of ways. In the 1980s, that surgery would have likely taken place in a larger city, maybe Atlanta or New Orleans or even overseas. When we spoke to DeKalb Medical Examiner's Office in Georgia and about another case, we learned that serial numbers on medical implants are a recent development. Before that, it could be possible to trace a medical device to a hospital, but that's never a sure bet. Apparently, hospitals would often exchange medical devices based on need. For instance, Tennessee needs a certain something, so South Carolina sends it over. Then North Carolina asks for an item, and Alabama obliges. That sort of trade-off went on for a long time. So in Julie's case, the breast implants were not going to be the magic link to her identity. The involvement of the DNA Doe Project and the Trans Doe Task Force have been key to what's been accomplished since the discovery. If you're familiar with forensic genealogy, then you've likely heard of Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press. They are two highly trained genealogists who realize the potential of DNA to aid in identification. Like many other genealogists, they'd worked mostly on family histories, like helping adoptees find their birth families. The new tool of familial DNA has widened the possibilities of what they can do and what they can find. The public probably truly became aware of this kind of work when another forensic genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter, was instrumental in the identification of the Golden State Killer in 2018. And since then, forensic DNA has helped to close many more cases— You may be aware that there are public DNA sharing sites like GEDmatch, where users of private DNA sites like Ancestry or 23andMe can upload their raw data. Users can then connect with relatives who use different private sites, and researchers are able to connect the forensic dots. Colleen and Margaret's DNA doe project has used GEDmatch to successfully identify several well-known does, including Lyle Stevick, Anaheim Jane Doe and Buckskin Doe. And we have no doubt that by the time this episode airs, more cases will have been closed. We had the honor of speaking with Colleen about her work and we asked her to describe her introduction to forensic genealogy and then tell us a bit about the process.
2: My name is Colleen Fitzpatrick. I am the co executive director of the DNA Doe Project, the founder of Identifinders International and the author of Forensic Genealogy. In about 2017, uh, Margaret Press made contact with me with a question about why we couldn't use genetic genealogy to identify John and Jane Doe's. It had been a big question in the genealogy community. And because the databases, the direct-to-consumer DNA databases have gotten so large, you know, it, there was a lot of pressure to try to see if we could use them for forensic purposes, but those companies don't work forensic cases. So, as Margaret and I talked a little bit, we found that, in fact, we could come up with some workarounds and that maybe we could apply the same technology, although not with the direct to consumer companies, but we could apply the same technology to identifying John and Jane Doe's. In the first few cases we did, we reached out to law enforcement. I've worked 100 cold cases in one way or another, so I had a lot of contacts. And at that time, in 2017, nobody knew what what this meant. Nobody in law enforcement understood autosomal SNP testing or GEDmatch. So we had to reach out because, you know, nobody would reach to us. They didn't know what was going on. And after we got a, first, a couple of success stories behind us, then we started to, you know, hear from law enforcement more and more. And now we really don't do many reach outs. We do one in, once in a while we reach somebody. But a lot of agencies still don't know what this is. or believe it or not, some have not even heard of it. So that, you know, if we reach out to the agencies, it can be an uphill battle that we don't have time for. So basically right now, we hear from agencies every
0: day. With the growing number of cases brought to them by law enforcement or suggested by other organizations and civilian groups, we wondered if the DNA Doe Project has had to turn down cases.
2: We really have not turned down any cases. Um, Whether we go forward or not usually depends on the quality and the quantity of DNA. Um, That being said, we're doing actually doing a lot of research on how to improve our approach to very degraded DNA and also very low-level DNA. That's what distinguishes us from the rest of the people doing this, That, to my knowledge, is that we're trying to do more and more with less and less in parallel to the forensic research community. We're in touch with many of those people, and so uh, it's not how many cases we take in It's how many success stories we have and how quickly we can come to those success stories.
0: When people, and we include ourselves in that, have an interest in true crime, it can result in a wide but shallow understanding of how the science works. We know DNA is taken, for instance, but then what? What's done with it? The preparation of DNA for, say, CODIS is not what a forensic genealogist would use, So we asked Colleen how, after choosing a case like Julie Doe, which they're working on as of this recording, they would proceed. The first step to researching a
2: Doe case um, really is to check the DNA, to get the two labs, the law enforcement agency and our lab, to talk to each other to find, again, the quality and quantity of DNA. If we find, you know, it's within our range, then we send it to the lab and through a process or two, we get a JED match kit done. In the meanwhile, we read the case files, we look at the case history, we understand how the DNA has been stored, we try to research everything we can. We talk to the agency, we get in touch, you know, we get familiar with the detective who's working on the case. We get, you know, the whole backstory so that when we're getting ready to upload to GEDmatch, you know, we do that with some background, some knowledge about what what we hope to see or what we think we might see. And then we upload it to GEDmatch. We take a look at the matches. We make sure that, you know, that we know what we're dealing with and we can advise the agency whether it's going to be hard, easy, medium. And then we just tell them to have patience and we start building trees and, you know, trying to d- use some of the GEDmatch tools to, you know, understand the different sides of the family and basically do the genealogy.
0: Julie's case has run into trouble at that first step. That is, getting a viable DNA sample translatable into a usable format for genealogy. So far, the DNA Doe Project and Lake County have attempted three extractions in hope of getting enough DNA to produce a successful GEDmatch profile. The most recent attempt used an experimental process requiring much less material. Since Julie's case was revived in 2015, DNA has not been the only avenue pursued. In that time, Lake County officers have sent out hair, teeth, and bone samples for isotope testing. Isotopes can aid archaeologists and forensic scientists in a number of ways. They can tell how long ago a person lived and in what region or regions they lived in. Some regional groups are broad and might include an area like Northeast Florida and South Georgia. And others may have markers for several places that are not necessarily next to each other on a map, but bear strong similarities in the markers they create. The test performed on Julie Doe indicated that she came from South Florida, and though she was found in Florida, that's still helpful information. After all, as someone who was left along the highway, the possibilities were endless. Another advancement in Julie's case is an updated forensic portrait, out in early 2019. We've seen it, and the picture is beautiful. Julie looks a bit like Daryl Hannah and stands in the foreground of a calm beach scene. The digital illustration is all soft blues and grays, a striking contrast to the forensic sketch from a few years ago, which was done in black pencil. In that one, there's an air of unhappiness that makes it feel a bit like a mugshot. Although DNA sex designation can aid in cold case identification, the information may not always help investigators create an accurate picture of an unidentified person. In some cases, when the only available categorizations of remains are biologically male or biologically female, we might miss a variety of factors that affect how a decedent identified, presented, or was known. For those interested in resolving Doe cases, knowing that a person's listed sex and their gender identity and expression may not line up is important. And that's precisely where the Trans Doe Task Force comes in. Co-founder Lee Bingham-Redgrave told us they began their work to honor their friend, Krista Lee steele Nudsleen, who was murdered in 2018. They focus on combing through Doe cases for signs that a decedent may have been trans or otherwise gender expansive. Because of the high rates of violence perpetrated against the trans community, they estimate the number of trans and gender variant does to be in the hundreds. After they find possible cases, they gather information into templates to submit to the DNA Doe Project. There's the basic information, like police contacts and dates and times, but They look especially at mention of clothing, accessories, and other forms of expression. And then they submit their findings to the DNA Doe Project in hopes that DNA analysis can be performed. Julie Doe's case is a major focus, but they're working on many smaller, less well-known Doe cases, too. Trans Doe Task Force does not assume the gender identity of Doe's. They simply gather the facts of the case in hopes that their work will make some dent in the number of unidentified trans does and the number of unsolved murders. The details of each case could add up to the decedent having identified in any number of ways. In cases such as NamUs UP10528, also known as the Pillar Point Doe, Trans Doe Task Force specifically assigns a neutral pronoun in their social media discussions. NamUs lists the decedent as approximately 5'10", about 140 pounds, and brown-haired with hazel eyes. The victim showed obvious signs of overkill. They had been beaten, strangled, and stabbed only hours before discovery. They were also wearing feminine clothing, including capri pants, beige panties, and a padded beige bra. As we reported in Episode 2, overkill is a classic sign of biased crime. There was no evidence of where this victim originated, but police had ideas. In 2011, the Mercury News covered a number of San Mateo Doe cases and included this passage on the Pillar Point victim. Quote, Police think the transvestite may have been picked up in San Francisco's tough Tenderloin neighborhood by men who thought he was a woman. When they discovered he was a transvestite, they beat him to death, police theorize the young man is buried in an unmarked grave in Colma. end quote. Though mentioned in media reports, possible connection to the tenderloin has not been confirmed by official police sources. And as Anthony Redgrave of the Trans Doe Task Force pointed out, there's no evidence that the Pillar Point Doe was engaged in sex work. Recently, new digital manipulation of the original Pillar Doe forensic sketches were released, and the results are singular four different variations on how they may have looked based on possible gender expression. This approach doesn't render the sketches too broad or make them too generally applicable. The same features shine through. It's just the gender expression that changes. And those changes can trigger memory of a witness, a friend, a family member, because as we learn from DeKalb County Medical Examiner, it's micro details that we, the viewers, focus on make a victim's hair blonde, and many will have trouble imagining it brown. What if this variation were more common in forensic sketching? Would there be more positive identifications? Groups like the Transdo Task Force think so, and they hope to marry science, genealogy, and contemporary, complex understandings of sex and gender and expression to close more cold cases and create better resources. As Lee Bingham-Redgrave told us.
1: I think that the most important thing to do when you are looking at a doe is to throw out your assumptions about what that person might have been like in their life or who they might have been. Because doing forensic genealogy work and working with the DNA doe project and working on the cases that I've worked on, you're always going to be surprised and it's not going to be what you expect. And, and that's, that's true for any genealogist. You're, you can't predict where your research is going to take you. People do all kinds of stuff. People go all kinds of places in their lifetimes and, and have all kinds of experiences. And it's really fascinating and completely unpredictable.
0: If Robert Warren had not decided to review cold cases in 2015 and noted a few indications that Julie had been misclassified, it's unlikely that anyone would have ever heard of her. It takes widespread, consistent media coverage to make the mainstream aware, the kind that forensic genealogy is getting right now, with case after case reaching a successful close. And not just doe cases either. Decades-old sexual assaults, unsolved murders, serial killings— all are meeting their match at the combination of genealogical research and public source DNA. It seems simple, and we wonder why more people don't do it. But Colleen Fitzpatrick of the DNA Doe Project cautioned us that the apparent speed and ease isn't as it seems.
2: Um, I, what, I, what I really want people to understand is this is hard work. You see a lot of cases in the news, especially killers that pop, 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 you know, every day there's a new one and it sounds really easy, but it's not. It's hard work. And I would, I'm going to guess, I'm just from our statistics, I see in the DNA Doe project that probably one in 20 cases really is an easy case that, you know, you look at it, it takes you a few hours, you know, it takes you, you know, maybe a week. The rest of the cases you know on the average take a few months, and we have a couple of cases we're still working on after sixteen months so I want people to know that you just can't do it and pop you know it's actually very difficult um, and I'd like to tell the genealogists out there the same thing that you, you know when you if you want to do this, understand there's a lot to it that You don't just go to your local sheriff's department or your local police department and say, hey, I want to help you with genealogy. Give me a match kit. It's not like that. You have to be knowledgeable knowledgeable about the DNA, uh, about, you know, quality, quantity, what it means. My takeaway is this is hard work. It's not like in the news, all the excitement in the news. That's great. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. The rest of it is very difficult.
0: Colleen hopes to attract the help of genealogists with an interest in populations underrepresented in public DNA databases. She also highlighted the need for more grassroots groups like the TransDo Task Force who choose to focus on a region or a population. Any kind of focus makes that dawning task of sorting through thousands of cases and gathering information more doable. The TransDo Task Force welcomes the aid of those who can write blog articles, do archival newspaper research, or go through missing persons listings, but you don't have to have a particular skill set to make a difference. According to Lee Bingham-Redgrave, simple willingness to increase awareness can do a lot. 2018 was a landmark year for cold cases. And, as of the writing and recording of this episode, in the spring of 2019, investigators are well on their way to raising that bar. There are big-name cases that may be solved this year, that may be solved by the time this episode airs, like the Zodiac, perhaps the Oakland County child killer, or the deaths of Amy Mahalovic or Libby German and Abby Williams, of Faith Hedgepeth, of the hundreds of others whose cases have been aided by developments in DNA technology. Perhaps we'll even have the honor of updating Julie Doe's episode and marking it as resolved. We can hope. If you have information as to the identity of the woman known as Julie Doe, please contact Investigator Tamara Dale of the Lake County Sheriff's Office at 352-343-2101. Special thanks to Anthony Redgrave for content advisement, the Trans Doe Task Force, and the DNA Doe Project. You can find links to their websites in the show notes. Additional content advisement by Winter Wheeler and Brandy Williams with research assistance from Kim Fritz and Haley Gray. Next time, we discuss two Georgia cases, unidentified children from DeKalb and Ware counties. And we talk to the staff of a medical examiner's office who are passionate about identifying the child they call Dennis Doe. We hope you'll join us then.